Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some small way. And today, I'm very excited to have writer, producer, Christy Hall with me. Hi. Hello, hello. Uh, for those of you who are not as familiar with Christy's work, please let me give you an introduction. Christy grew up in a very small town in the Oklahoma panhandle. The small town life propelled her to move to the big city where she earned a degree in playwriting and went on to see many of her plays staged. In 2011, her original stage play, Yours, Isabel, premiered at the 2011 Edinburgh uh, Festival Fringe? Fringe Festival? Yeah, people switch them around all the time, so both are <laughs> I never know. fully acceptable. It's the fringe, you guys. Yeah. It's the yeah. fringe. We know what it we is. We know what it is, exactly. Well, no one's going to be like, oh, what yeah, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but after some success with live theater, she turned her eye to writing for the screen. Her debut screenplay, Daddy-O, was optioned to be produced by Martin Scorsese and LBI and landed her on Variety's list of 10 screenwriters to watch and in the top three of the blacklist of 2017. But many who like to binge on Netflix series will know Christy as the executive producer, co-creator, writer, of the ad- adaptation of Charles Foreman's graphic novel, I'm Not Okay With This. Directed by John Entwistle, who people might remember from the other Netflix show, End of the Fucking World, uh, the show stars Sophia Lillis as a teenager in a dumb small town who develops surprising telekinetic powers. On the screen side, Christy is currently working on an English-language adaptation of Joaquin Trier's film Thelma for Film Nation, and she also adapted Katie Kahn's Hold Back the Stars, set up at Lionsgate with Justin Baldani to direct. Her newest stage play, To Quiet the Quiet, is the 2018-2019 Woodward Newman Drama Award winner. Woodward Newman. God, what a lovely couple. Isn't that wonderful? I was was most excited to get that award just because just to be part of any measure of that legacy. Isn't it wonderful? Did they give you Numinos? Never mind. Uh, (laughs) Christy will next be adapting Stephen King's The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon for Vertigo and Village Roadshow. So, Christy, the movie that you chose to talk about today is... Willow. Can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? Listen, I love genre and I love, um, I just, I love that sphere. So there were a lot of titles that I could have chosen, but I feel like as a creative, um, as an artist, as a writer, I wanted to pick something from my childhood because I feel like those are the most formative years um, as a creative where you really, um, I think you kind of become very charmed and dazzled by by the art form of storytelling. And so I just kind of wanted to honor one of the ones that I grew up with that ultimately has landed me here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen Willow, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch, as always. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes the movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Willow first, this is your shot. And now let's introduce Willow. Written by Bob Dolman and directed by Ron Howard for release in 1988, Willow stars Warwick Davis as Willow, a Nalwyn living a a mostly idyllic life with his wife Kaya and their two children. One day, an imprisoned woman gives birth to a baby in a faraway castle of Daikinis. Those are the kind of, like, larger humans. Uh, The woman begs a nursemaid to smuggle the child away just in time before the evil queen Bavmorta arrives to kill them both. Please help me! I can't! They're going to kill her! 
The nursemaid puts the baby on a raft of grass and sends her down the river, but the nursemaid does not survive an attack of Nakmar hounds. That's where Willow comes in. His children find the baby in the river, and he reluctantly brings it back to the house. Absolutely. Under no condition whatsoever is anyone in this family to fall in love with that baby. Willow leaves for a village festival where a sor- sorcerer's apprentice will be picked. Willow wishes to be a sorcerer, but he does he does fail the test, unfortunately. No apprentice this year. Suddenly, Nakmar, a Nakmar hound, destroys the village, looking for the baby. Willow presents the baby to the village. This child is special. This child must be taken beyond the boundaries of our village, all the way across the great river to the Daikini Crossroads. Well, who do that? It seems only fair that the man to take this baby to the crossroads be the very man who plucked it out of the river. I nominate Willow Upgood. So they go to the crossroads, and at the crossroads, the only human they come across is a criminal in a cage, Mad Mad Mardigan, played by Val Kilmer. After failing to get some passing soldiers to take the child, Willow agrees to release Mad Mardigan and give him the baby. You gotta promise to feed her. Come to daddy, little darling. And keep her clean. Absolutely. On the way home... Willow is captured by brownies, who also took the baby from Mad Mardigan, and told by the and he's told by the fairy queen that the baby's name is Alora Dannon, and that he needs to find the sorceress Finn Rizel. Take my wand, the sorceress Finn Rizel. She will guide you and Alora Dannon to the kingdom of Tirasleen, where a good king and queen will look after her. Willow and Alora set off, where they find Mad Mardigan hiding from an angry husband. Soon, Bav Marta's warrior daughter, Sorsha, and her army finds them, but they're able to escape by inciting a brawl. Mad Mardigan takes them to Raziel, and she's been turned into a little possum. It's really cute. This can't be right. One of Bav Marta's spells transformed me. The group is soon captured and taken to a snowy camp. They hatch a plan for escape, but Mad Mardigan is dosed with some love power, powder and professes his love to a very confused, but interested, Sorsha. I love you. Stop saying that! How can I stop the beating of my heart? It pounds like never before. Out of fear. Out of love. They escape on a sled. Eventually, they meet the warrior Arik and his crew, and they take Sorsha hostage. She escapes and runs back to her army to warn them. Then, the group makes it to Tir Aslin, a castle that is supposed to have an army, but it's barren and filled with trolls and troll shit, unfortunately. That's right. So they've got nothing except for, you know, like a cache of weapons. So Mad Mardigan prepares for battle with booby traps and plans. A huge, complex fight with a two-headed troll corpse dragon in a moat ensues. And it's a lot to explain. There's some slapstick stuff. There's people, blah, blah, you know, killing each other, all that stuff. But in the melee, Willow loses the baby. All hope is lost. Fortunately, Sorsha realizes that she has feelings for Mad Mardigan and switches sides in the middle of the battle. Where's Sorsha? She has turned against us, your highness. The group and Arik's army trek to Nakmar Castle, where Bavmorta turns them all into pigs. You're not warriors. But Willow's finally able to turn Raziel back to her human form, and she gets ready for battle. 
Raziel and Bob Mora have a big wizard fight, and Willow does his best to help. But in the end, he ends up fooling Bob Morta because he does his old disappearing pig trick, and Bob Morta falls for it, and then she dies, restoring peace and prosperity to all Daikini. It was just my old disappearing pig trick. Willow is rewarded with a magic book and returns home a hero and a sorcerer in the making. That was so impressive. That's the whole movie. Wow. And you did it in just like minutes. I really, you know, I try to make these concise, but motherfucker, this is a, there's a lot going on that I didn't realize until I watched it and I'm like, this is a lot. It's an Um, adventure movie. So there's a lot of twists and turns, but you captured it beautifully. That's exactly what happens. Well, I think, (laughs) so that's something that I would love to kind of get into first was the fact that like, yes, there is a lot of stuff here. It's true. I mean, watching it again, I was kind of amazed. I didn't remember that the plot took so many twists and turns. But because it is an action movie and it just they are on a journey, you know, much like the Lord of the Rings and the landscape is always changing. Um, I had the same thought of, wow, there's there were more set pieces and more legs of the journey than I even really remembered as a kid. Yeah. And the funny part is, though, that is. Bob Dolman said, quote, after our first story meeting, George said, let's think about 45 scenes. And I said, why 45? And he said, well, it's three acts. So 15 scenes per act. I said, the second act is longer, though. And he said, I can only afford 45 scenes. <laughs> so oh, let, that's interesting. Let, let's say that if the middle of the movie is longer then the 15 scenes can be longer. That I thought was hilarious. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, typically you kind of more are measured by page count. I've never heard anyone do it by scenes. Um, no, but I, that's a great quote. <laughs> I have, I have so much to say about the writing of this, and we can kind of dig into like what that process is, how it worked for them, how that might yeah. not work for you, or how it might, you know. But I, I think that that's something that is interesting. Is like I haven't heard of that yet before, but the way that Bob Dolman talks about it is that he came from WKRP mm. and SC and SCTV. So he was writing sketches. Mm. He had not done a feature yet. Mm. And so this was his first feature job. And we can get into that later, too. But he always approached everything from character mm. because that's what you do in a sitcom. And, you know, what a lot of people do in their writings, you approach from character, whereas he was up against um, a, a guy who very famously thought about things in terms of plot and let other people kind of um, develop the characters for him. Mm. And so one of the processes they said is that um, he said, I start with character and he starts with plot. So he takes a yellow legal pad and says, OK, what scenes you want? I said, this is so random. He said, we're making the movie. Let's make the movie something we want to watch. We had to talk about the audience then. And we said, if we pick one person we want to see, it's going to be a 12 year old boy who wants to see it and we can satisfy him. Then we're successful. Then we dove in and I said, I'd like to see a scene in the snow with them going down a sled. And he said, that sounds like something that would be in act three. I also wanted a river scene. These are all things I liked in adventure movies. They weren't in the right order and I had to go back and see if totally random ideas would fit into the movie but a lot of them did. We'd say I want a dragon in a castle, all of us jumping in like 12 year old boys and I went home with that yellow piece of paper thinking how am I going to write this movie? I mean have you ever, like when you're approaching genre have you ever thought like here's um, here's a piece of uh, genre, a scene that I love from a movie that I've adored or something like that how can I emulate that? in what I'm doing, because this is the kind of audience that I want or the kind of feeling that I want to evoke. 
It's a wonderful question. I, I do think it's really important to really understand, uh, yes, who is your audience, right? So like when people say, we're making this movie for everyone. Well, if mm-hmm. you try to make a movie for everyone, then you're actually making a movie for no one. Yeah. Like you really do need to distill for yourself like, who is this for? What is the demographic? What is the tone? Mm-hmm. But then instead of, I don't really go like, I don't I don't like to write to scenes. I really I like to start with character, Mm -hmm. which is what I really like about Willow, to tell you the truth. I mean, all the fun set pieces aside and the adventure and the plot and, and, and all the scenes that you and I were just discussing, like what I most love about this. And it's very much the way that I write is start with your characters because if you know what they want if you know their actual need and want and drive and you know their character arc i find that all those other things come into place Mm -hmm. so for example like and just to kind of run through them like willow for example we sat down on a man who doubts himself Mm -hmm. he wants to be a sorcerer but he doubts himself so we watch him through this adventure gain confidence and all the way to, yes, becoming more confident in becoming, um, you know, a, a, a rising, emerging sorcerer. But I love that his actual, you know, most successful magic trick in the, cli- the climax of the entire movie is actually honoring the fact that he's just a farmer that does pick tricks. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, I think, showing, yes, you do have the potential to be this incredible sorcerer, but also don't be ashamed of just who you are. And it all needs to work together, right? Mm-hmm. And then like Mad Mar- Mardigan, for example, it's like you start with someone who's in a cage. Clearly he did something wrong and is left to die in a cage, right? Mm-hmm. And even he, he runs into this fellow war buddy, Eric, who's like, you're a thief and like you're it's like he's kind of been reduced to this laughable person that doesn't have loyalty and is just a thief and kind of reduced to nothing and we watch him actually start to form his alliances and loyalties again um we watch him even i love when he puts on the armor there in the castle because it's like we we go we watch him you know go from wearing basically a torn dress that he has to like tie at his ankles in order to make pants mm-hmm. back into being kind of fully realized as a knight again all the way to the point of his redemption story is Eric being like his war buddy saying go win this war for me so he's been reinstated to being a soldier that even his war buddy who dismissed him now is like no you are worthy to go win this war go do it mm-hmm. and it's like if you look at every single one of them um, even the the queen's daughter um, you know her understanding that actually she wants to fight for good and like what I do like about this movie is that if you really distill it down to the characters needs and drives and their full arcs I actually find their arcs to be wildly satisfying because they they all really change because of their journey that was not the case in the earlier drafts of oh, this I do not um, know about it this. became a it became a kind of a, a problem to be solved for Bob Dolman uh, in all I think he only wrote seven drafts over the course of a year so it was actually fairly um, you know he comes from a TV writing background and so I think it was it was actually it was a quick process yeah, yeah in a sense um, but uh, he said 
I remember one time I got a little panicky and thought the story wasn't working. I said, I think Mad Mardigan is a better character than Willow. What if he was the hero? George said, what are you talking about? Willow is the hero. I said, I'm just having more fun writing Mad Mardigan. And he said, stick with the plan. My struggle of writing was, oh, what if this started with Mad Mardigan getting caught and put in the crow cage? And I began to write that. And even though it didn't end up in it, all the stuff goes into the writing of something. And it just deepened my understanding of Mad Mardigan. And it paid off. And that I discovered he had a soft side of him. And that was a feminine side. I like that about him because Willow was so obviously a caring person. But to inject a little bit of uh, having Mad Mardigan fall in love with the baby became very important to the rest of the story. I love that. So there were certain things that he was doing where he was overwriting because mm. at one point in time he um, had a 220-page script and he he taped a pair of scissors onto the copy and gave it to um, George Lucas and to Ron Howard and they sat down and he was like, I realize this is long, but it's a 200, like, I did, we need to do this. So. I love learning about this. I know nothing about any of this. That is great. 220 pages? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, I think, you know, we'll, we'll get into this, the kind of freedom that Bob Dolman had and what he was doing, how rare that might be. Um, but I think that that's, uh, I know for me as a writer, I tend to not overwrite. And I'm wondering what your process is. Do you, do you do that kind of story building, like in a separate document ever? Do you like, what's, what's your process with that? Uh, wonderful question. I do. I tend to overwrite. Um, unapologetically, because I think sometimes you have to just kind of vomit it up and then go back and then you have a clearer sense of um, what what can stay and what can go. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think no matter what medium I'm working in, whether it's theater or television or film, like I do like to just get it out and then and then you go in because writing is rewriting. And so it's trusting the process that you actually have the full freedom. And in fact, in the beginning and everyone has their process. But for me, in the beginning, I would rather just get it all out on the page, like all the thoughts mm -hmm. Um so that everything is on the table and then I can really pick and choose what I want to keep and what is worthy of keeping and what are the, you know, you have to sort of murder your darlings. Um, and then in terms of process, like it's a little different depending on what medium I'm working in. Mm -hmm. Typically my plays, I just jump right in. I... Um, I just start writing like I, I just let the characters start to talk to each other. A lot of times the characters talking to each other, actually, they reveal to me what happened. But theater is very different because sometimes it really is one location on a stage and it's only two or three people literally talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, like I'll know the inciting event. I'll know where they are. I know who they are. A lot of times I know how it ends. Sometimes I'll in theater, I'll write the final scene and then I'll start at the beginning and be like, OK, because I know that's what I want the climax to be. So then I go back to the beginning and I'm like, how did they get there? And I let it re be revealed to me through the characters. Um, but theater, th there's a long gestation period in theater. And you can also rely on the fact that it's going to be workshopped a lot. You're going to work with a lot of actors. You're actually going to see it in different cities with different actors, with diff different directors. So you kind of have the freedom to just really ease your way into it. And in that way, mm -hmm. when you're being paid to write a feature, um, and here's what's so funny about it is I actually typically despised outlines. That's just not I don't like to write about writing. I don't like to describe the scenes and the characters. I want to just actually put it on the page. So I will say to to be a full full blown professional, I I I had to I was forced to become um, much more um 
just eloquent with my outlines mm-hmm. and just understanding that that is absolutely part of the process. You can't get away with it because if people are paying you X amount of money, you're a WGA writer, studios are involved, maybe big pieces of talent are involved, you're working with maybe already there's a huge director on board. Um, the outline is part of your the process. Like it's understood that you're going to do an outline or a treatment, and what's it's actually good for you. That's what I learned. I was like, oh, they're just pulling my teeth. It's like pulling teeth, and I'm just screaming, and there's blood everywhere, and it's horrible. And it's, I'm like, just let me write the script. Well, actually, it's really good. It's actually so helpful because to be asked to write an outline before you you write one word on the first page in final draft. What it is, it kind of ends up being a little bit of a contract with your partners. So it's you being like, this is what I think the movie is. I and it's it's and I do write I write long outlines. There's a lot of times like 30 to 40 pages of like this. I'll get super detailed because I would rather know now if I'm off, if there if the ending isn't working, if there's a character that you want to get rid of, if there's a certain dynamic you don't like. I'm just going to vomit it all up. I'm going to give it to you. This is what this is what I think this is. And what's good about it is by the time and you kind of have to go through process, you have to run the gauntlet. But once that outline is approved, you are so assured going into be, uh, being sent to script, basically, um, because you now are assured that all of your partners agree this is the movie that you need to go write. So it's interesting. The thing that was my arch nemesis, which literally <laughs> was outlines, has now become my friend. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bob Dolman had a similar problem, too. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick, uh, quick break. When we come back, um, we'll uh, continue a little bit more with some Willow talk. We'll be right back. Look, there's a lot of sacrifices that you have to make throughout the day. Blood sacrifices. Basically, blood sacrifices. But with Beta Brand, you never have to sacrifice comfort or function for style. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles, including premium denim, with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com switchblade. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com switchblade. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. So go to betabrand.com dot com slash switchblade for 20% off. This is your captain with an update from the flight deck. We'll be reaching Max Fun Drive on March 16th. That's right on time. As a reminder, Max Fun Drive runs for just two weeks, and it's the best time of year to support the podcasts you love. If you look towards the front, you'll see your favorite hosts with special bonus content and lovely thank you gifts for new and upgrading monthly members. Now, sit back, relax, and catch up on your favorite Max Fun shows now so you can listen to the new episodes releasing March 16th. And thanks again for choosing Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and today I'm joined by Christy Hall, and we're talking about Willow. Uh, so uh, before the break, you know, we were talking a little bit about 
having some kind of freedom and in going into these projects that you're getting paid for, right? Um, Bob Dolman, you know, he says it many times throughout all of my notes that he had a very particular kind of freedom that you don't necessarily see a lot today. Um, and he said, quote, I believe that I wrote seven or eight drafts of the script in about a, a year or a little more. First, I got it in an outline form for myself. I never I never gave it to them. I thought I'd write a rough draft from that, but it didn't take too long because I wanted to get feedback from them. I remember thinking this isn't the greatest draft, and I hadn't written a feature before, but these guys will have lots of feedback, so it'll be fine. The situation was much different than it is today and makes it unique to George Lucas, too. I was completely trusted, so I didn't feel like if I screwed up the script, I would lose my job. I felt like I was here here to make this movie with them. The creative process goes draft by draft. There will be lots of discussions. You'll be paid for every draft you write. You have a job. You're hired. I can imagine in a studio situation where they'd fire you and say, okay, we need another writer. Mm. And um, for his first feature coming in from that, he just he has so much to say about how wonderful it was working with both Ron Howard and um, George Lucas in that respect of just feeling like he had a safety net pretty constantly and that for every draft, it felt like there was no, um, you know, second guessing necessarily that they they made the right choice in hiring him. I'm so glad he had that because freedom and support is truly everything. Um, And I I mean, I would say I when you're first starting out, um, especially in the feature space, like I myself, um, you know, my first couple of jobs because I'd never done it before in the system and I had just never um, I'd never I, I literally just became a WGA member just a couple of years ago and it's like it it is scary at first um, uh, and I, I'm just I love that he had that process that he had partners that really gave him room to breathe and to although he had proven himself in another medium so mm-hmm. I think that he in a lot of ways he'd really earned his stripes and he'd really earned that freedom um, because I came from the theater space, I do feel like I had a little bit more to prove that I could turn in, you know, a, a screenplay draft, uh, you know, 120 pages that would be, uh, you know, something that people would be excited about. But but yes, I, I, I really know what he's saying in that I my first couple of jobs, I did I did have anxiety about like you do have that fear. Like I don't have imposter syndrome and that I'm like, I'm a fraud. I don't belong here. It's like I've I've been writing for way too long. Like I have clawed to be here. I it, this is, you know, it's taken me almost 15 years to 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 realize this dream. Right. So it's like I don't feel like an imposter per se, but I did know that I, I did have something to prove. Mm-hmm. I did have to prove that I could show up, get drafts in on time, be a team player, um, hear notes. You know, a lot of a lot of writers have a, a hard time with notes because their ego gets in the way. And mm-hmm. I would just encourage, you know, um, when you're getting when you're getting notes, it's like um, I think there is a, there is an art form to a lot of writers can't rewrite themselves. And I would just say that if you are a, re, a writer who has trouble rewriting yourself, like really lean into the process, trust your partners. It's OK to push back on notes that you truly don't believe in. But being 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 a good team player and understanding that it really takes a mind trust to get something out of the gate. And the fact that he really felt that from the beginning is incredible. And I have to say, I feel like I had to kind of fight for that freedom and and prove that I that I 
that I could and and do it successfully. Um, and it feels really satisfying. I think that I'm just starting to experience what he had the first go around now mm-hmm. um, through hard work, proving like you can count on me to do it. I do feel like I'm my partners now, even if I'm in new partnerships, you know, when you've built enough of a reputation, people you don't feel the same measure of pressure that you do in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say if you feel that pressure, if you feel that anxiety, if it feels scary, like, yeah, it is scary. You're doing a big, beautiful thing. And isn't it wonderful? So roll up your <laughs> sleeves and do the fucking work. And guess what? Do the work. Do it well. Get it in on time. Show that you can and you will. And that those freedoms will come later. Mm-hmm. They will. But earn those freedoms. Earn the, the right to take a breath. Earn the right to be able to be given a little extra time. Or even I have partners now that are like, I had a situation recently where someone was was like, I was like, do you need an outline for me? And they were like, what do you feel? And I was like, I feel like I could just jump in. And they were like, well, then jump in. I trust you like because you have a track record. And but I would just say you have to earn those moments. So like if in the beginning you're not given that kind of freedom, don't take it personally. It has nothing to do with you. It's just that. This is also a business, and that's what's hard about this industry is that it's taken art and creativity and turned it into a business that actually is very commercially viable and makes millions of dollars. So, like, have humility in that, that a lot of people have a lot on the line, and you need to be a team player. Yeah, and, you know, like, if you think about this, the fact that George Lucas was taking so much risk with a movie that had a big budget. Mm. Like, this was not a small-budget movie. How much was the budget? Do we know? It was $35 million. In 1988, though. Oh. It's a, that's a lot of that's money in 1988. That's a lot of money, yes. Um, no one wanted to finance this movie. Mm. No one. Everyone turned it down. The only people who, uh, like, he was kind of self-financing some of it, but the, really most people turned the financing down. They just didn't think that it was going to be a good thing. Um, George Lucas said, they said, this is not a good investment. The fantasy genre has been spectacularly unsuccessful, including Krull, Legend, Dragon Slayer, and Labyrinth. Only Dark Crystal was relatively successful. MGM finally agreed then that they would put up the money, um, and uh, it was just because it was the same people who had um greenlit star wars it's so funny because i'm also a big fan of labyrinth and dark crystal and i think to your point that maybe sometimes things that don't do well at the box office you know doesn't mean that they didn't become you know utterly treasured i mean box office i think is really silly and in fact sometimes i look at rotten tomatoes to find the movies that are like somewhere around 50 percent rotten you know Mm. and and i'm just like that might be that might be the thing. The thing, the, the, yeah. Like in, in 10, 20 years, like that might be the thing, especially for um, uh, things geared towards children. Um, for sure. And actually, it was interesting watching Willow again this morning of just like, just to be reminded of, there's a lot of humor in it and like silly humor, like playful. I mean, I guess I guess that's the reason I liked it as a kid because, but as a, watching it through adult eyes, it was fun to be reminded that, yes, there's the fantasy elements. Yes, there's the action and fight scenes. Um, and there's a lot of heart in it. There's a lot of like sweet sincerity in it. But then also to be reminded of like these really big comical moments. Um, and I understand that probably from adults, it maybe didn't make sense mm-hmm. in terms of maybe to them it felt like it wasn't one cohesive movie, perhaps. But I just I don't know, like 
seeing it as a kid, I mean, God, I literally thought it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I, uh, we're we're going to take a, a quick break. When we come back, um, we'll get into some more Willow stuff. I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we host Round Springfield. Round Springfield is a new Simpsons podcast that is Simpsons adjacent. Mm -hmm. Um, In its topic, we talk to Simpsons writers, directors, voiceover actors, you name it, about non-Simpsons things that they've done. Because, surprise, they're all extremely talented. Absolutely. For example, David X. Cohen worked on The Simpsons, but then created a little show called Futurama. Mm -hmm. That's our very first episode. So tune in for stuff like that with Yardley Smith, with Tim Long, with different writers and voice actors. It's going to be so much fun. And we are every other week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Christy Hall, and we're talking about Willow. Um, So, you know, you had been talking a little bit about the... um, the kind of soft warrior and, you know, those hands and this kind of connection. And I wanted to bring up um, a little inspiration that Bob Dolman had for writing um, in particular, a scene that I thought is really lovely and is very small. And it's the one where um, uh, Mad Mardigan is holding the baby and feeding uh, her uh, black Black root. root. Yeah, that's a great scene. And so Bob Dolman said, George said, you got to watch these movies first. He got me a screening room because he didn't want me to watch it on VHS. We'd be down at Warner Brothers and he'd say, "Okay, you got to watch Seven Samurai and all these samurai movies. And it really worked. There's a scene in Seven Samurai and that became a very important uh, movie to me when I was writing Willow. There's the scene in the middle of the battle, a mother carrying a baby and she gets shot with an arrow and the guy comes in and grabs the baby and the guy is crazed and crying and he says... This happened to me. And then the scene turns into my mother fed me black root. It's silly, yeah, but through that scene, we find out Mad Mardigan had a mother and was capable of these softer feelings. And mm-hmm. so he took the essence of this warrior grabbing this child and having this moment and being like, this happened to me, my mother, you know, like, and mm-hmm. and distilled it into something that's just a really sweet, almost throwaway moment that reveals quite a bit of backstory and history with, uh, you know, a very concise um, nature. I'm curious, you know, in terms of what you get from inspiration from other movies, TV, plays, you know, have you ever done anything where specifically you can kind of pinpoint pinpoint that you kind of, um, you know, distilled a feeling or a scene from something else and, and kind of stole what they were doing there? I mean, I think, look, we're all inspired by by every story that's ever, every story you've ever heard, it influences you in some way, right? So as a creative, look, we we even subconsciously sometimes, I mean, I've even written things that people are like, oh, it's kind of like that scene or whatever. And I'm like, I literally didn't even think about that. But now that you bring it up, you're right. So it's interesting that even subconsciously, we are kind of manifesting things that we love. And then I do like it in moments as a creator where, where you are doing it knowingly. You mm-hmm. 100% and you're doing it because then you can do it with better craft and better thought. And and so, for example, like in I'm Not Okay With This, that uh, now on Netflix, um, you know, we, uh, you know, our, our female protagonist, it's, you know, she... 
she kind of lives in a similar space to uh, Roald Dahl's Matilda, mm-hmm. to Stephen King's Carrie. Um, the fact that 21 Laps from Stranger Things were also our producers. Like, we knew that people would draw similarities between um, Sydney and Eleven, for mm-hmm. example. So it's like, I think wisdom just dictated that instead of shying away from it and being afraid of it, to just press into it and be like, okay, this is a treasured landscape. This is, you know, there are female protagonists out there that have already kind of played in this sandbox. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to get in this sandbox, then again, wisdom would dictate that like, okay, what have other people done before? Like, what do we like about Matilda? How is Sydney different? Like, let's talk about Eleven. Let's let's talk about, let's just go to all those places so then we can be incredibly thoughtful about how, like how we want to make sure that our character is uniquely different in that landscape. Mm-hmm. But then also, how can we also give little winks to an audience who's also come from these stories? So, for example, um, those who've watched the show and those who haven't, I and I won't spoil anything, but, but um, in our show, we very much give a nod to Carrie. And a lot of people ask, like, you know, when she's covered in blood and she's wearing the dress, like... Did you like that totally is reminiscent of Carrie? Like, was that on purpose? And it's like, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. I love Stephen King. And like and again, it's like now, Sydney, the character we've created is very different than than everyone. She's not Matilda. She's not Eleven. She's not Carrie. She mm-hmm. is Sydney. And, you know, she's very, very uniquely different. The tone of our show is different. The trajectory of our st- show is different. There's a normalcy and a blue collarness to her life that we love. Like we made her whole unique and different where she can stand among those cast of characters they can all coexist and all be celebrated and and wholly unique all at the same time but like yes like she's in a dress covered in blood and it's 100 percent a wink and a nod to stephen king's carrie um and isn't it delicious and fun and especially in 2020 you know a lot of the audiences that are watching my show maybe haven't been exposed to Carrie and that you know maybe there are some Stephen King fans out you know 15 year old Stephen King fans out there but I'm mm-hmm. excited by maybe people who are watching it and get surprised and delighted by that imagery and actually didn't know where it came from and then it's like oh no that's Stephen King's Carrie it's like well what is and then to go read it go fall in love with Stephen King like we're all like we're all manifesting and we're all kind of co-creating I mean if art it's like does art imitate life or does life imitate art? I think it's all the things all of the time and we're all part of it. If you're a storyteller, like you can't not be part of that. I want to talk a little bit about kind of um, moving out of your comfort zone with some things because um, for for Willow, Bob Dolman really was not prepared for the action sequences and writing those. And that was very different. I mean, and of course, you're talking about like moving from playwriting to screenwriting or multiple scenes, lots of action, that kind of thing. For him, the same thing where it was just like WKRP in Cincinnati is takes place in a radio station. Like he's got people talking. It was really hard. So when he took the job, um, George Lucas promised him, you do the details. That's what you can do. But leave the dragons to me and he was just like whoo and then finally they got to that giant tiras lean scene Mm. that is endless there's no way that i could explain all the things that happen in that scene but it was so difficult for him to write that he was just like on the verge of giving up because it was just i mean it would be hard for any action writer in general but he was a person who didn't even work in that genre right Mm. so he said quote i had a lot of difficulty with with the tira lean battle 
There were too many things going on. We wanted all those things going on, but without losing track of character. Mm. So much goes on in that scene. And that's where I said to George, you said to leave the dragons to you. I don't even know where anything is. George had this idea that all these things should be piled into the scene. I had dialogue, but I didn't know where to put it. It was frustrating. He said, "Okay, I'm going to put you in a room at ILM and just work with the storyboard guys. And that was great. I'd say Willow's on a bridge and then a dragon is going to come out of a moat that's for some reason inside the castle and they'd do all this drawing and I'd run back to the hotel at night and write the dialogue following the pictures and then I'd show it to them and we'd go back and forth writing and drawing. That was the most difficult just because of the logistics of it. There's no character development in that scene, just action. That to me was just like, wow, you really dug yourself out of a hole because there is no character development, mm. truly, except for Sorsha falls in love. Decides in she, love. yeah, she sees him on the dragon fighting, and she decides he's fighting for like you see that moment, yeah. and she grabs him and kisses him. Yeah. You're right; that's the most that's probably in terms of character. The rest is slapstick or um, fantasy. Yeah. And yes. and those two coming together. And so I think it was really hard for him because he was just like, look, I, the only thing I want to do is advance character, advance mm. the plot. But, um, you know, George Lucas was just like, you need a big set piece like yeah. this. And sometimes you had to you have to set those things aside. And so but he still wanted to have some dialogue in there that that made some kind of semblance of sense and, and that, that worked for the characters. What I really love about this conversation is that, like. Look, as an artist, even if you play in similar sandboxes and you're drawn to certain archetypes or whatever, like it is 100 percent. It is so vastly important to remain an avid student of your craft and to dare to attempt things you've never done before. So like, for example, you know, when I when I wrote Get Home Safe that um was in the top five of the blacklist in 2018, I believe. Like, um, I, you know, pe- the town had kind of known me from Daddio, which is basically two, it's a cab ride. It's people in a cab and it's a whole conversation, which mm-hmm. you can see how, as a playwright, that was actually suit. Cause people are like, how do you just have them talking the whole time? I'm like, that's what I do. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's theater, right? So it's like, actually, I mean, they're like amazed. And I'm like, no, that's actually the easiest thing I can do. Then with Get Home Safe, it was like, Okay, this is a genre movie. Like we're talking thriller, pulsing, you know, like, you know, like playing in the more genre space in terms of a scary movie, you Mm -hmm. know, like. So it's interesting because I had people close to me be like, have you ever written a genre movie before? And I was like, no. And they were like, how do you know that you can do it? And I was like, I mean, literally, I, I just was like, I the only assurance I have is that I know who the characters are. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have a sense of the point of the movie. I have a sense of, like, you know, the set of circumstances. And, yeah, the rest of it terrifies me in terms of big set pieces and chasings or whatever the hell. Like, had I ever done that before? No. But I didn't want to be afraid to dare to try because I do think as an artist we should never lose our courage. Like... You know, even in the theater space, like I write musicals as well. I'm a book writer, like librettist for musicals. Like, look, there was a time I'd never written a musical before. There was time I'd never written a play before. There was time I'd never written a screenplay before. I had to learn Final Draft. There was a time like, you know, this adaptation, Hold Back the Stars, that's now set up at Lionsgate. Like that was it's an elevated sci fi adaptation of a book. 
It's kind of like Gattaca meets gravity, sort of. Like, had I ever done that before? No, but it's kind of like, I guess I would just say, like, yes, like, have fun playing in the spaces that you love to play in, the characters you like. Like, sure, you're going to be drawn to certain things. But what I love about this is what I'm so proud of him, actually, is, like, then if Willow is this incredible reflection of an artist that really jumped in the deep end and relied on the things he knew he was good at and then also just was thrown in the deep end and learned to swim. Mm -hmm. It's like, hell yeah, that is what an artist is. That's what it looks like. So it's like, actually, if you find yourself kind of gravitating to the places that you feel super, super safe, then you're not challenging yourself and you might plateau as an artist. And deep down, no artist wants to feel like they're not growing. And because, you know, so much of becoming an artist is your own curiosity and your own your own need to just wonder, I think. And mm -hmm. so it's like, don't, you know, don't uh, believe in yourself, you know, dare to try and listen. And if you fail or if you do it, if you if you if you land like it's like the Rotten Tomatoes, if you get 50 percent there, trust that you'll have people around you that will help you get the rest of the way, you know, but like also don't be afraid to not be perfect all the time. I think art is wild and and perfectly imperfect. So just fucking start throwing paint on the canvas and have fun. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. So, uh, Christy, again, people can see um, I'm Not Okay With This on Netflix. That's and um, there are many episodes there for you to binge on, correct? Correct. And I have some, yeah, features, uh, that, that a lot of really fun announcements coming out. And you'll start seeing stuff fully realized in the feature space um, very soon. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. It was just my old disappearing pig trick. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned? Audience supported.